Welcome to Up My Hockey with Jason Padolan, where we deconstruct the NHL journey, discuss what it takes to make it, and have a few laughs along the way. I'm your host, Jason Padolan, a 31st overall draft pick who played 41 NHL games, but thought he was destined for a 1,000. Learn from my story and those of my guests. This is a hockey podcast about reaching your potential. Hey there, Up My Hockey. Uh, today, my guest on the show is Kevin Sawyer. Kevin Sawyer is an NHL alumni, uh, also Spokane Chief alumni, uh, and that's where we met. We essentially grew up together. We had three years in Spokane back in the 90s. We played under Brian Maxwell and, and Mike Babcock together, and Kevin Sawyer uh, was a walk-on uh, to make the Chiefs. It was one of his dreams, which he gets into, and that story to make the, to make the Spokane Chiefs is such an awesome one uh, that you really have to listen to. And, and he went on to later wear the captain uh, three years later for the Spokane Chiefs. And, and his story from getting from Spokane into the NHL, uh, where he played for the likes of the Boston Bruins, Phoenix Coyotes, St. Louis Blues, and uh, the Anaheim Ducks, 110 games fighting the toughest guys in the sport back in the day. Um, he chronicles his involvement in that, his, his preparation, um, how, how he learned the craft, and, and essentially his demise as well is because he ended up having to retire because of concussion, and he t- gets into that story as well. Uh, Kevin is truly one of the great guys in the game. He is super authentic. Uh, he, is, he is a genuine quality individual who is uh, really easy to be around. He's always got a quick remark or, or, or a good story. Uh, and we always got along great back in the day. I hadn't talked to Kevin in a long time, and it was so great to to have this uh, interview be a reason for us to get back together. Uh, Kevin currently is the color analyst for the Winnipeg Jets uh, on TSN up here in Canada. So he's around the Winnipeg Jets on a daily basis. He has an insight into uh, you know what what he's watching there as far as uh, practice habits and what is he seeing in other in other towns when he's watching guys like Sidney Crosby practice. So there were some really cool questions we we were able to get into there about you know current NHL players and and how they go about their business. So there's a lot of good stuff. Kevin's story, his personal story, his personal story of of grit and resiliency and perseverance is is super inspiring and something that you guys should all listen to. And just as being a, a hockey fan to hear about what it was like to to lace up the skates every night on the pro level and to fight some of the biggest baddest people uh in the sport. Uh, is, 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 is something you, you need to listen to. So without further ado, uh, I give you my interview with Kevin Sawyer. All right. I'm sitting here with Kevin Sawyer and I'm smiling because my gosh, it's been too long and we go way back and uh, it's really awesome to, to have the conversation with you. So, Soizy, thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate you being on Up My Hockey and you're going to have a lot of cool things to share. Yeah, thanks for having me, buddy. I, uh, I always love talking hockey, but to be honest with you, it's awesome to connect with you. I connected with a few other of our mutual teammates with the Spokane Chiefs just recently, so maybe we'll talk about that, but man, it's really good to see you and talk hockey. Yeah, we're definitely going to get into um, Junior, because I think Junior is a big portion of, you know, kind of where we come from uh, as hockey players, and and you and I, it's a big, I know it's a big part of my life, like the time I spent in Spokane, I think it's a big part of any junior hockey uh, players' memories, uh, kind of where they came from and those roots. Um, and to be quite honest, I mean, most of my 
closest hockey connections are still from those Spokane Chief days, you know, when we were kids trying to figure it out in a, in a new country. So we'll definitely get into that. But it's a quick introduction. I mean, Kevin, 110 games, three goals, three assists, 400, 400 penalty minutes in the NHL, the greatest league in the world. Like, congratulations on that. Um, ended up playing for 10 pro teams. Um, you know, the, the big ones were St. Louis, Boston, Phoenix, and, and Anaheim. Um, and I want to get there because I think that's such an awesome story that you have. Um, I don't know if rags to riches is the right way to call it, but just, you know, I, I know the adversity that you faced along the way. And I know um, some of the stuff you went through and, and I want, I want those listening to kind of understand that, geez, it, you know, you, you can do it. You, it can be done. There's a, there's a way to get things done and to achieve dreams. And, and I think that's where I'd like to start is coming back, um, getting back even before 1991, 92. I love hockey DB because I, I found out more about you doing the research on you than I even knew. Um, and, and what I thought was interesting was 91, 92, but I know, but that was when you were 17 no 16, I think 91, 92. And then and that was when you're in the BCJ. So you had those three stints in the BCJ, but so what, talk about the year before that. So that's the, for those who are listening, BC junior league is one of the best uh, junior leagues going. Usually it's a, it's a pipeline to division one hockey and university hockey. Um, at the time when we played Soyzy, it wasn't really a fast track to the NHL or anything. It was just a step up. It was a really good league and a lot of guys were pumped to be there. Um, but it was, a, it was definitely a step down from the, from the Western League. But you started even before that. Where did you start before that? And tell, us, tell us a little bit about, I know you had a little dream of playing in your hometown there. Yeah, it's, thanks for asking this because I don't get to talk about this very often, but to me, this is a really significant part of my kind of transition from kind of childhood to starting to understand a little bit about it was what it was like to be a young man. So the Grand Forks Border Bruins and the KIJHL's Junior B, my local hockey team, and that was my first real desire in life, I would say, is to play for the Border Bruins. And I can remember pods like going to sleep when I was 13, maybe 14, every night thinking about what it would be like to play. And in the rink, there was this area where all the high school kids watched. It was called the jungle. It was a great atmosphere. So I wanted it probably like a lot of kids in our hometown. Tried out when I was 15, cut because you can't even play. Tried out when I was 16, cut. Um, and I played house hockey. And then as the 17-year-old, I tried out again and got cut. And I was devastated. There was no midget team uh, that year in my hometown, not even a midget house team. So I was playing actually old-timer hockey with my dad. And yeah, crazy. And then um, I asked the coach if I could practice with them once in a while, but he'd have me up once a month-ish. And then their kind of seventh D-man broke his leg skiing. Halfway through the season, I was a full-time practice guy, and then I ended up getting into the roster uh, full-time. So um, I wasn't even really a, a KJHL player for very long. Um, no, I made a mistake. That was as a 16-year-old, my, my mistake. Um, and then I made it halfway through my 16-year-old year out of old-timers hockey. <laughs> um, and so I was no good, to be totally honest with you. I was a uh, D-man. Um, but... Um, the next year, uh, same thing. I made the team, but I tried out junior A. Made three different teams at the beginning of the season, sent down. I went to Kelowna, made the team. Two months later, sent down. Went to Vernon, got cut. Went to Penticton, got cut. So I was all over the place. Right. But the well, you know what? But let's talk about that a little bit, though, because like even that perseverance at the start. You I mean you're self-proclaimed small town kid, right? You, you're, 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 your goal, your vision for you is like, if I can play for the border Bruins, man, like that would be, that would be great. 
And let's be honest, that's the crappy league. You know what I mean? It's not a great league. You know what I mean? It, it, it's a league where a lot of guys are going, they're just playing hockey because they want to play. They're away from home. You know what I mean? You're not, you're not getting scholarships from that league. You're not getting drafted, right? And here you are trying and you're getting cut. And like, so what are you saying to yourself when, when you're going home after that at 16 or 15? Yeah. Well, it was more what my, what my folks were saying to me because I was devastated, you know, like uh, literally walking out into the parking lot, all of my friends and all of the guys that made the team are celebrating and I'm going home crying. Um, yeah. What I'm saying to myself is uh, I'm listening to my folks just say, you know, there's always a way, always a way. My folks are really blue collar, hardworking people. Um, so, you know, they told you, told me all the things that you would tell your kids about, um, you know, like there's a positive here and how are you going to find it? And how is this going to make you better? And what are you going to learn from this? That kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and so that was the thing that I heard all the time. I didn't have a long-term goal. That was my goal. Um, and I'm glad because if I had any more that I felt like I had to do, I probably would have crumbled. I'm, right. glad, I'm glad for the short-term goal. Um, yeah. so all I could think about was finding a way to make that team the next year. Right. Um, and so turned out that I, I got a break and, and yeah. that team. That's so awesome. I love, I mean, I absolutely love that. I mean, cause here, and for those of you who missed the entry, here's a guy that played 110 games in the NHL and at 16 has a hard time making a junior team and keeps coming back and then gets cut three times in the same year from a BCJHL team and keeps coming back. Like I just love that perseverance and that grit. And there's, there's been a lot of science around grit recently. And that's like, you know, the ability to get up after you fall and to get up and to keep going and to keep going and to, you know, just to kind of have a, have a, I'm not going to fail at this attitude. Right. And, and boy, do you ever exemplify that? I mean, how did the stops that you, you know what, so easy, which blew me away. So one, you played in Vernon, which I didn't know my hometown Two, we played in the same team in Penticton which I didn't know, but I don't know if I was there or not. I mean, again, you played three games that year. I played, and that was when Paul Carrillo was there. I was a 15 year old in that league and you were 17. I think you were two years older than me. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, not to say that you're supposed to remember me, but like, do you remember, like, were we there at the same time? I, it's funny you ask because the only person I remember from that, that uh, team was Paul Korea, who later ended up being a teammate of mine in Anaheim. But I, I I'm not sure either pods right. touch tunnel vision. Right. And it's funny. I should look back and dig that up. I'd love to know. Wouldn't that be That's funny. So was, was Phil Volk there when you were there? Do you remember uh, that name? I, I remember the name. I don't think so. But I okay. He was, a, he was our big, tough defenseman. So I, I assume that you were like kind of filling that role a little bit then too. Is that like when you were? Just starting to introduce myself into that and, and not quite to be honest with you. I, I, I didn't really know what I was or who I was as far as a player. I hadn't. At that point, I think I'd been in one fight and I got absolutely pasted. So right. uh, I think it was more like gritty, crash, bang, forecheck. But, or at that time, it was, you know, defend because I was a yeah, yeah. yeah, good for you. I mean, what I find is interesting, though, is, is you know, I'm looking at your 91-92 season and you played 18 games, it says. I mean, is that, is that the only games you played all that year because you're up and down and going different places? Or did no, you end up somewhere else? No, that would have been because of all the time I missed um, in uh, being away at Junior A. 
what you know being healthy scratched and uh how many i couldn't even tell you how many games i played uh in the bcj is that did i play 17 games yeah that's what i'm saying in that whole season you played 17 games yeah so that would have been with three different teams i think that i ever played. yeah yeah so it was it was up practice squad get into a game healthy scratch healthy scratch maybe get into a game and get sent down go home right another place to play so yeah it was uh and then the remainder of the year i played junior b back in in Grand Fork. So it wasn't a ton of hockey. That's amazing. That's amazing. So how did you handle like even that scenario? So you're, you're healthy scratch a ton, right? And then you're, then you're getting cut. Like when you get cut, so you're, you're going home or somebody picking you up at that stage or how do you, how do you, how does that next team come along? Yeah. Like I had a little uh, beater car um, driving myself around, packed it full. Um, I seat belted my ghetto blaster with the cord into the cigarette lane. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know my folks uh, my dad never played the game he had no idea about how hockey worked at all so he couldn't give me any kind of advice I had some family friends around me that give me advice some good some bad um, but just um, getting home getting on the phone talking to different people uh, and just finding a phone number to call again to see you know where where can you go and right. I can't remember who I called in Vernon to get myself a, a chance to go play there. I couldn't, I can't even remember, but it was yeah, just- That was the Mel Liss era, I think. I don't know if he would have been that's on the right. phone with him or not. Yeah. That's great too. I remember when he sent me down, he was great. He was at, he had a cigar in his mouth and he gave me his credit card. He goes, go fill up your car and grab some lunch. <laughs> that's awesome. That's totally Mel. That's funny. Um, so then, okay, so so it's 91, 92. I mean, that, that, like that honestly, you're, a lot of people would have quit right then and there. I mean, that's a hell of a year, right? You're going all over the place. You're driving your car on your ghetto blaster in there. You're, you're healthy scratch all over the place. You're not a young man either. I mean, 17 is not old in that league, but it's not super, super young either, right? So you're trying to make your way. And for some reason, you keep going. Was it just like this fire in your belly that said, hey, I, I want to be a hockey player? Or what was it? Yeah, um, I, well, I was in grade 12 too at that year. But there was, uh, you know, at that time, Podsy, it was more of a – I, I wanted to put, to be a hockey player, but I think it was more of just, I, I now can't quit. And, and I have to say that that's, that's probably mom and dad, where my burning desire to play in the NHL was nowhere to be found at that point. That was a, literally a, a, a dream. Yeah. Um, of course, I dreamt about it, but it, it wasn't a goal yet. Yeah. Um, the reason I, I continued was just simply, I think, well, I can't quit now. I just can't quit now. So, uh, you know, I guess that was my real first real lesson in in perseverance. Like, this is a story I probably shouldn't tell you, but I'm going to tell you anyway. (laughs) I can can remember being at an arcade when I was 13. I think I was 13 um, with a buddy. And I was playing a a video game. And this kid from Trail, who was our rival town, came up and just started punching me. And he he started fighting me. And he he kicked my my rear end. Yeah. can I say yes on here? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so I went home bloody and my mom was crying and my dad told me to put my work clothes on and go back. And uh, I'm not so sure that that was the best advice he ever gave me, but I, uh, the lesson w- was well instilled in me and that was to stand up for yourself and you just, you just never quit. So that was the fighter in me. And I'm not so sure my dad wanted me to become a fighter with that lesson, but I don't think I'd, I'd tell my son to do that. I know I wouldn't tell my son to do the same thing, and yet somehow I'm thankful for that. Yeah. Um, so anyway, that just kind of tell, tells you a little bit about the mentality of mom and dad. 
Right. No, I mean, yeah, it worked, right? It worked. Um, so let's get, so the next stage is, is you playing for the Chiefs. And I remember us having a conversation about that saying like, now this was almost like another little mini dream come true, right? Like, so you got to play for the Border Bruins, you had your cup of coffee in the BCJ and now, and now after like not a, an illustrious season in the BCJ, you get a tryout for a WHL team. And then make the squad, like which is which is awesome in and of itself. So, like, walk us through that a little bit. Uh, so then that, that year, my dad took me to uh, evaluate college evaluation camps where you pay to go play and they evaluate you. And we were in Calgary. And then, um, I got fourteen invites that summer, ten from the BCJ, four from the Western Hockey League. One of them being the Spokane Chiefs, two and a half hours north from there is where I lived. I watched Kid Falloon and Whitney play a huge fan like yeah you know so um when i got that call i remember i was doing homework in my room and i knew i was going that was my choice i wanted to go to spokane um and then we went to at that time pods we had rookie camp separate from main camp and that was in, in calgary um no idea what to expect to be honest with you completely freaked out uh, thought it was way over my head and, and in some ways i was but I went to rookie camp and out of, out of sheer uh, intensity and work, like I was in good shape because um, I kind of learned that lesson a couple years before. So I went in really good shape and I ended up just getting in fights because I pissed people off from just being relentless. So no idea how to fight. Um, didn't do very well in my fights, but it was enough to uh, turn a couple heads as far as, you know, with Maxie, Brian Maxwell, our coach at the time, where he got me an invite to main camp. And then I'll tell you this story quickly too, because Jared Bednar, now the head coach of Colorado Avalanche, um, we've reconnected and, and I remember him after I went after Burry uh, Val in main camp, uh, just because he slashed me and I'm like, I didn't know who he was, I just slashed him back. Uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> Bednar uh, give it to me pretty good, but um, I'll never forget that it was the first time I went up against a lefty and we joke about it now, but um, it was the only chance and only reason I made the team and you would know this is just, it was out of zero talent, but just, you know, the tenacity and then just, just work. And, and, oh. and, and you impressed the right guy that like you mentioned that name. And I wanted to get onto that. Um, Brian Maxwell, you know, uh, he, he, I mean, love him or hate him. And then there's going to be guys on both sides of that fence. Um, he, he, he was a guy that resonated with your style of play for sure. Right. He, he saw, he saw what you were doing. He saw what you were about and he wanted you to be a part of that team. And, uh, and that's why I say to some of the kids too, like the, the coaches make a massive difference and you're not really sure how you're going to do it or how you're going to be able to connect. But boy, if you find that guy and he likes you and you, and, you know, and you can build that relationship, it can make and break careers. And, and, you know, that was a really huge opportunity that you got from showing the right guy at the right time that you really wanted to be there. And maybe tell me a little bit about what you remember from, from about Maxi. Well, you know, this is such an interesting conversation because I feel like you and I would be in some ways, and I won't speak for you, but on the opposite sides where that was my coach. Um, because this is, you know, Brian Maxwell from, from what I remember of Maxi is uh, as tough as he was as a player, uh, and as good as he was to develop me as a, as a fighter and a, to play a role. Now I'm going from defense to forward and kind of guide me as to how to play that role and be smart in that role. He was still a really good tactician. And, and as far as teaching us angles and, and you know, the de definition of being in good defensive position, you would remember be, being between the man you cover and the puck, being between the man you cover and the net. And if you can see both, great. If you can see the puck, that's a bonus. <laughs> like, yeah. All that stuff. Like he was, um, so I just remember him being, rugged raw old school 
but smart. And, you know, Maxi has done a lot of things that a lot of people would disagree with and a lot of things that just don't fly in today's game. But anytime anybody ever helps you along your path, as you would know, and influences your success, I'll always feel like I owe him a lot. Yeah. You feel that way. So he was good for me, for sure. Yeah, no, and I agree with you 100%. It's so funny that you just mentioned that D-zone coverage. Like, I'm doing that with my Adam kids now. Like, I'm, I'm coaching an Adam A team, and we've been doing that the last two weeks. And that was – and just so, like, the listeners understand, like, I, I never heard D-zone coverage until I was with Brian Maxwell. I mean, I was, I was with him 16 years old, 17 years old, getting drafted to the NHL and learning D-zone. And now, you know, able to teach a 9-, 10-year-old, like, what good D-zone coverage is. And, and Maxie was. I mean, credit to him. He's one of the best – teachers I think of like the game the tactical part of the game and becoming a well-rounded uh player I mean I I played for a lot of coaches throughout my 14 teams and I definitely remember him like I think our personalities or maybe you know my dad's personality and Maxie's didn't work out and that's unfortunate sometimes that comes into play too and maybe we'll get into that maybe we won't but um yeah, I mean, I was a skilled guy. I thought I was kind of a. I, I thought I played relatively hard nosed for a guy that for a guy that would score. But uh, for whatever reason, I you know I had a hard time getting on the ice for him sometimes, and uh, and that was a big adversity for me. My draft year was trying to navigate that relationship with my coach, who you obviously want to impress and you don't want to have a bad relationship with, but when you get stuck in those situations, I mean, it is, it's a real human inter, interpersonal relation. And so you have to be able to find a way to navigate it. Um, Interesting too, just quickly, and I'm going to jump ahead here because we'll probably get there anyway, but just with the Winnipeg Jets who I now broadcast for and Patrick Liney, who just signed a two-year bridge deal. What you just said is the reality for so many people uh, when you're a superstar throughout your whole life and, and ahead of the pack with with your talent and your skill and your tools, you don't have to learn a lot of the things that some of us others do. And so Patrick Liney has been going through and will continue to go through learning how to play better away from the puck. But the patience that you have to have as a coach, Paul Maurice being that guy is amazing. And I see it firsthand where, you know, developing the, that full well-rounded game and players like him. And I, I, you're the same way Like you, you were that elite skill a lot of people don't understand how hard that is for guys like you and Patrick and a lot of others to to learn that when you're 18 years old it's not right. easy. So, yeah no I, I I mean I do like I said I give Maxi credit I think he made me a, a more rounded person you know I mean not, well maybe not person's wrong with a player I think a, a, a well more a much more well-rounded player but I remember him like I remember him with you like um essentially mentoring you like coaching you but almost mentoring you like I remember you guys he'd be dropping gloves with you and Bronner would be there too and you guys would be showing him how to grab a jersey and do the switch of the hands and I kind of saw I mean the creation of of Kevin Sawyer that people saw in, in the NHL and um that must be some like you said that's a special spot for you because you know if, if, if it wasn't that you know I mean who knows what would have happened right you, you know what's amazing and I'll just tell you one story that might tell it all where and we'll just talk specifically about fighting where you know, there was so much more to it than that as far as working on, on, on your edges. I can still remember Maxi's drills on my all four of my edges and, and how to know when to go and how to play your role. But specifically to fighting, I can remember Maxi talking to me about, you know, having a hard right hand. My left isn't that strong. So how do I maximize that when I fight a lefty? Well, you can YouTube my fight against Ty Domi. It was in, in, uh, in Toronto and big lefty. And Maxie taught me when I was 18 how to cross grip. And I used that 
in my National Hockey League career. And I mean, I learned it as I went, but he's the guy and he's the reason that I didn't lose that fight. And right. so that's how much he impacted, you know, right. me as, a, as a player, but as a fighter and all, everything in between. So uh, yeah. I, can, I, he, I can remember thinking in that moment, right? This is what I do. This is what I wait for when the shoulder drops now, you know, and uh, it lasts a lifetime. Yeah, no, hundred um, percent. I think we'll touch on some of that fighting stuff once we, maybe once we get into the NHL portion, but I want to talk a, a bit about uh, Babs because we ended up, um, we ended up having Mike Babcock together in, uh, in Spokane as well. And at the time we didn't know he was going to be Mike Babcock because everybody knows him now. Um, he had just come out of university of Lethbridge. He was a young guy, had a bit of a chip on his shoulder. Um, I remember him being super well prepared. I remember him being uh, really intense. I remember him being very strategic. And looking back, I mean, again, having all the coaches I did have, he was, he was definitely one of the best packages at, at the time. You know, I mean, even though he, he was young. Um, and I, I think, I mean, he had a big impact on you then and later on too, correct? Like that was, that was another guy that you seemed to bond real well with. Yeah, totally true. Where I kind of had my, like, kind of taking that evolution of who I was as a player into now adding some leadership um, into that, um, into my 20 year old year, which was when Mike came to Spokane. And, you know, the reality was, is, is, you know, I wasn't a very good player, uh, but they created a role for me and they started to help me identify who I was going to be if I wanted to have a chance. So um, just like you said, I mean, teaches you so much about how to do the right thing, how to think the game. I rem what I remember about Babs is how he can take something complex and simplify it into something that you can actually apply right away. Um, so his communication skills. But I would, the, when I think of Mike back in the junior days, and I played for him in the American League and, and the NHL, but I, I think about learning how to take a bit more role on as a leader. Yeah, no, I love that. And I actually, I mean, because I think coaching is such an interesting element and in, in, in something that I do and something that you were involved in with the Chiefs as well. So I love, I love asking questions about that because really like now he's going to be regarded as one of the best of his era, if, if not the best, you know, like there's, there's definitely an argument there. What hasn't he won? He's been successful everywhere he's gone. Um, and you saw that evolution from, uh, you know, and yourself grew as a player as well, but you saw the evolution of him as a coach, like from, from junior to the minors and then to the NHL. Um, did you, did you see a, a, a change in him? Like how, how did you, how did Mike evolve in, in your opinion? Yeah, um, I did, but very, you are who you are. And then you, you try to improve on your weaknesses. And, and then of course, bring your strengths to the surface as much as you can. And the reason I say that is, is like, I, I have a lot of friends that either coach with Mike, played with Mike, you know, the nineties or up to even to t today. And, you know, everybody has strengths and weaknesses and, He's certainly evolved. One of the things about Mike that I remember is how uh, engaged he was daily with his leadership group and how hard he can be on his group or even people around him. Now, that's because of the fact that he wants to be better every day, and that's, to me, what makes him so great. But it's, it's difficult. So here's one story, and, and I think this is, this is in no way meant to be disrespectful, but in the American Hockey League, we won our first seven games uh, under Babs as a, as a new coach in the American Hockey League and leadership coffee in the morning and our group would be in and out of his office and everything was great and we went on to lose three in a row well after the third one I mean it was brutal like I remember like just short and grumpy and oh god it was terrible and I was in the cold tub one day 
and I can be accused of being <coughs> sensitive sometimes, but Babs comes up to me and he says, we're having an effing meeting, get out of the tub and into my office and just pissed me off. Yeah. We had our, our meeting and that night I started a line brawl because <laughs> the, guy, the guy that I started with, I owed him from the year before. <laughs> so after the game, I went up to Babs and I'm like, hey, can I talk to you for a second? He says, if you think I'm upset about that, that's exactly what we needed. And I said, no, that's not the problem. The problem is every time I was driving that guy in the face, the only person I could think about was you. <laughs> the reason I say that is because he was awesome and he taught me something in that because he got backed off and I wasn't trying to be disrespectful, but it, it was honest. Yeah. He's honest. And he called me that night at like one in the morning. He goes, okay, this is what I've come up with. We're talking about this tomorrow. Are you okay with that? Yeah. We went to the rink and we had a team meeting about it. And he got better from it. Do you know what I mean? I challenged yeah. him and he got better from it and he yeah. became vulnerable with it. Yeah. And so to me, that's him evolving as, as a coach that's hard on his people and learned how to be hard on them and yet still grow with them. And, and I would assume, um, you know, he, he continued on that path in Anaheim and I'm assuming that he's still, you know, much better. Right. Than that. but, yeah. yeah, that's an awesome story. I love that story. And, and good for him, like you say, a testament to Babs, because a lot of people think he's arrogant, you know, in, in the media and everything else. And, and generally, arrogance means you're not going to listen, right? Like, you know it all, and, you know, everyone, nobody else gets it, right? But, if, I mean, if, if he has a guy coming up to him as a player and says something, he wakes up, obviously he's thinking about it, one in the morning he calls, he addresses the team. I mean, that's that's growth, right? And and I have heard in his interviews that he is a big believer in growth. And if you're not trying to get better, if you're not improving, what are you doing? You're going backwards. And, uh, you know, I definitely believe in that philosophy. And uh, obviously, you must embrace it. You know, I mean, to show up to the rink with the intensity that he has every day, he's got, there's got to be some drive from somewhere, right? And, and just to add to that, too, I, I'm a big believer in, in being vulnerable. To You have to be willing to be vulnerable to get better because the only people that really do get better are the ones that have the courage to look you know, to, to play to your strengths, but then look at your weaknesses and then do something. Right. To do that, you got to be vulnerable. And that was a sign of vulnerability. Yeah. No, for sure. For sure. And which is interesting, too, because maybe that was part of his evolution, too, because maybe your experience with him in Spokane was different. But the year you had left, um, that was the year we ended up going to the WHL finals. Um, so it was like me, Lamano, Gilly, like we were all in our 19-year-old year, right? It was our fourth year there. And um, I had a letter on Gilly was our captain. But I don't remember going into Babs's office much at all at, at that stage, right? And I don't remember – which I kind of, I wish I, if I ever had a chat with him, I'd, I'd ask him why, you know, like, cause I, I didn't feel like we were that included until, until the first round of the playoffs. And this is kind of, I don't remember a lot from, from a lot of years, but I do remember we were down three games to nothing to Portland in the first round. We were the number one ranked team in the CHL, right? We had whatever we had 110 points in all the CHL. We were ranked number one. We we're supposed to win the Memorial cup. And we played Portland in the first round and we were down three games to nothing. We ran into a hot goalie and uh, I mean, two things were going to happen there. One, a first place seed had never lost um, in the first round, like to a sixth team and, and no one in WHL history had come back from being down three games to, to nothing. So we were going to make history one way or another. And, and uh, Babs grabbed me. I remember before game four. So like we, I was already had my equipment on. It was after warm up. And, uh, and he took me out of the dressing room and like that had never happened before ever. And we walked down the hallway and he said, Jace, if we're going to do anything here, you got to put this team on your back. He goes, this is your squad now. And like, it was like, for me hearing that from him, cause I, I always felt that 
I don't know. I just felt that maybe I wasn't his guy or, you know, whatever. I led the team in points by like 25 that year and, you know, whatever the case was, but like, I didn't really feel like I was his guy, but to hear that from him and to have that, you know, that sense of like stamp, you know, like I need you go do this. Um, it was super crazy. And like, that was my best. I scored 21 goals in 16 games in the playoffs. We went to the finals and like, I mean, it was the best I was in junior. I mean, after hearing that, and it's amazing what a coach can do for you if you want to be, you know, I don't know, vulnerable. I know what the right word is there. Right. But like, he kind of asked for help kind of in his own way. You know what I mean? And like, and I think there was a personal relationship there. It was like, I wanted to go to bat for him. I wanted to win anyways. But when you have that sort of endorsement, I think it added another, it added another layer. And uh, that's one thing, uh, one conversation I remember with Babs that uh, I wish I had more of, you know, working with him. Interesting. That's a great story too. And uh, it's the, well, it's the same as a parent as you would know too, where you're, you know, anybody in a leadership position is amazing. It's amazing when they can connect with you or vice versa. What, what kind of power comes out of that? And that, that to me is pretty powerful. Yeah. And it's a belief. I think that that's like, I talk to guys about building their support team and I mean, hopefully it is your coach. Hopefully there's an assistant coach. Hopefully there's somebody within that organization that, that is on your team that, you know, you genuinely feel want, wants to be, they want you to be awesome, right? They want you to be your best, but to have that person, whoever that is, that you just know 100% believes in you and wants you to do great wants to support you. Like, that does a lot just for the human psyche, for the, you know, just to know, right. For confidence, for a lot of things. And, and I know, uh, I know a lot of guys go through the game kind of feeling like they're on an Island, you know, and, and I don't think uh, we're all human. I think you got, you got to build that, whether that's internally in the dressing room, whether that's with a coach, whether that's outside the game. I don't know. How do you feel about that? Do you feel that's a, that's an important part? I, I do. Like I, I say to my, both of my kids who are now uh, 16 and 15, and I say this to them all the time because I'm very aware of how, uh, I've had some really influential people in my corner on my side that have really helped me. Without them, I wouldn't have had the success that I feel like I've had as a player and even now as a broadcaster. Um, there's some people in, in my world would say, ah, you just got a free ride because you know Mike Babcock or you know Ray Ferrero. But what I, the lesson and the, the thing I tell my kids is, you know, if you go about your business every day and you work on being you, be you do the right things and you're going to find that you're going to start to gather people around you that want to see you succeed. And, and that's a really powerful thing where um, I've had that you're telling me a story about that. And it is the difference without it. I really don't think that I would have been a professional hockey player. And then I know I wouldn't be now announcing in the national league. So right. it's everything to have someone believe in you and show you that. Um, yeah. It gives you everything. I no, 100%. And I think that's an overlooked aspect. I mean, but I think we should touch on it. It's just that that scenario. I mean, I, I mentioned already, I played on 14 teams, you played on 10, like me going back to the NHL coaches conference this year, one seeing all the guys that are still in the game that I played for, whether in the minors or in the NHL, um, or in junior, seeing all the guys that I played with on teams, like that are now coaches or assistant coaches, like, it's one, it was amazing to see them. But two, it was like, those connections matter, right? Like what they remember of you matters, you know, and what you, what I could have done or what you could have done and not, not in a way that's like calculated, but just being a people person, right? Like understanding that those relationships make a difference, right? And that you're all trying to do the same thing. Like it has a very compound interest effect on, on your career. It, it really does. And, and, and that's the thing is like when, a, when, well, for myself, I suppose, when, when I believe in somebody and someone has earned my trust, usually doesn't go away 
it, it's something that's going to last last a lifetime for the most part. Right. Uh, and then when you have those qualities in somebody, I don't know about you, but as I get older, I realize that it's it's not as common as you would hope um, as far as having all those relationships. And so when you get them, I tend to hang on to them, and I think a lot of people do. So an authentic, real relationship, a trustworthy relationship, whether it is in professional or personal or whatever whatever it may be, and that is so true, maybe more true in hockey than anywhere because it's yeah. such a small world, but relationships are big. And that's the thing that some people don't realize, but I do, again, talk to my kids, is those relationships don't come for free. You, you've earned those relationships from how you've behaved, acted, and what you've earned. And those yeah. people now don't, don't want to let you go. So yeah. building relationships is a huge, huge part of, well, everybody yes. in my mind. No, I agree. And I, and I think that's one of the reasons why you probably are so likable and, and respected just in the people that, you know, you connected with, because even in your role, there was something about you that was, you've, you used the word vulnerable. It's such an interesting contrast because here, here you are the tough guy, right? But you were, you were vulnerable. You were a guy that would give a hug. You were the guy that, you know, would laugh and be the first guy to laugh at himself. And there was just something that was really innocent i think is another good word about you right like i think you knew who you were early on you were real humble you were real grateful and and being humble and grateful uh are really good traits to have in in the hockey world because fortunately or unfortunately i think a lot of us are walking through that trying to put a little bit of armor on you know and trying to be trying to be tough and trying to pretend like things don't bother us or whatever the case may be trying to fit in a locker room and, and, and navigate that whole scenario yet you seem to be able just to sort of be there and be yourself, even in a tough guy role. Um, do, do you, do you think that's accurate in my description? Yeah. First, thanks. That's a, I, I take that as a really big compliment. I, I do, but there's another side to it and, and um, humble. Um, I don't feel like I had anything not to be humble about. I didn't think I was a very good hockey player. Um, you know, the role I was in, you know, it was a tough guy role and you got to be sure about yourself, at least in that. But here's the double-edged sword for me. And this is interesting, worth talking about where um, my dad was like, he earned everything, everything. This is a hardworking man. And he's provided us all with a really good life. Like we had a really nice house to live in a nice area. We had snowmobiles, motorcycles. Um, we went to Disneyland as we were kids. We had a good life and it was all through his and my mom's dirt under their nails. So he, raised me with that mentality, Podsy, where it, it, what it gave me is, is the work ethic, um, but it also gave me doubt as far as like, the, you know, when you're humble, sometimes it's because you have a lack of confidence. And so I never really felt confident in myself, to be honest with you, until I was in around 26, approaching the second, my late 20s. And that was when I made it to the NHL because I was always doubting myself because my dad was always saying, you can do more, you can be better. And, and so I was always like, the mentality of, oh, it's not good enough. And right. so, you know, along with that comes some humility. And I'm glad for that. But at the same time, on the other side of it, I wish that I would have been taught to be just have a little bit more swagger because you need both. Right. Uh, you, know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Oh, 100%. Yeah. 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 And you can't manufacture that. It's tough to manufacture that, though, too. You know, like you said, you are who you are. Um, I agree to that with, to an extent. I do think that our choices make who we are. So I think every day when we wake up, we have an opportunity to, to change and, and, and maybe, you know, not necessarily maybe reinvent ourselves, but we can be a little bit more courageous or we can be a little more brave or a little bit more vulnerable. And we can, we can do these things if we're, if we're self-aware enough to, 
to be able to do that. I mean that as a person and as a hockey player, right? You can show up at the rink and you can totally be somebody. I think sometimes we get in our boxes. Like I remember me because my way of playing well was when I was loose. Like when I, when I was relaxed, um, I, I ended up being that guy. I, mean, I don't know if you remember in the room, but I was a guy that I'd be making people laugh or try and do it. And I almost took it too far, right? Like I ended up identifying like my identity to my teammates was this guy that was kind of goofy, which maybe would come across as not caring to some people. Right. But it wasn't that way. That was just my way to get ready. And then I ended up like putting on this, you know, this kind of uniform of like, I'm the guy that's loose and goofy in the room. Right. Um, so I think when, for myself, looking back on that, like I was much more serious about the game than I probably let on. And I wish more of that would have shown for me as well, right? To be able to find that, to be able to find that balance as you're talking about, right? Between having the swagger to be the goofy guy, but also having the humility and, and the, and the uh, you know, the honesty to be, to, to, to be a little more professional about it, you know, if that makes any sense. Um, just, just to add to that, as I can remember, like maybe more in practices than anything with you and I, like, goofy and I think that you need it definitely need that because it's such a serious business to begin with but I always remember how you competed hard <laughs> because I remember you and I getting into some battles and I'm like because I was such a pain in the ass to practice against all the rest of it but goofy in the room but when she snapped it on it I, I remember how competitive you were too Oh, I, I, I appreciate that because I like that's one thing that I, I did take pride in and I think that the game that's my one lament on the game right now uh, like one thing that I really identified with personally was like, whether I was a goal scorer or whatever, but whether I dropped the mitts every now and again, it was a hard game to play. If you're going to score 40 goals, you had to, you had to be prepared to go on some dirty areas and you had to be prepared to get hurt and you had to be prepared to sacrifice your body to do that. And, and I watched the NHL today and I just, I don't see that. You know I mean? I, I don't see that guys have to have that makeup to, to get there, you know? And, and, and that's just my own personal thing. I don't know how you feel about that, but I just really felt like I, I, I wore that with a badge of honor that I was a hockey player. Yeah. You know, I was a hockey player in an era that it was tough to be a hockey player. And, um, and now I, like I said, I just don't, I just don't really see that, but whatever it is what it is, I guess. It is what it is. And it's, when it does rear its head and there are players that I admire for just what you're saying, uh, it's, I never let the opportunity go by with, to, where I can celebrate them because it's faster for sure. It's nowhere near as physical and you don't have to endure as much grind to play the game now as you used to. But when a guy does it, and I'll bring up Blake Wheeler, like you would love this guy because you talk about like, he, he was you um, like as far as he had size, he has speed, skill and can score and he, he goes to the dirty area. So, yeah. uh, but I'm with you in a lot of ways. Oh, yeah. Good. Thanks for that parallel. <laughs> but I'll tell my kids all about that. <laughs> um, what, what I think is an interesting one is, well, you know what? I'm going to backtrack to medicine hat. I don't know if you remember this story. We never talked about this, but so you, you mentioned that we did battle. We, we had our moments in the room. I think we did respect each other, but we came at it from completely different sides of the fence. Like we've gone through the, your, your history. We haven't even, I haven't really touched on my history here on this podcast, but I mean, I was listed by Spokane at 13 years old, right? Like I was supposed to be the guy that was going to carry the, carry the trophy for them and be the guy, right? I was, I, so we came at like the Spokane cheese from different angles. You were, you were a guy that was learning how to fight. I was a guy who was supposed to be scoring all the goals and, you know, like you earned every inch. Not that I'm saying I didn't, but you know what I mean? Like it was just a different trajectory, different way to get there. So when we were at practice or we were at the game, like we had definitely two different approaches to how things were going and two different experiences and, and those paths cross sometimes. And uh, I remember in medicine hat specifically, it was a road trip and uh, we were on that Eastern swing 
and me and you, I don't know why, and I don't know what happened before. If you remember, maybe you don't remember any of this, but you were so mad at me. Like you were so mad at me and I was chirpy. I know I was right. So I kept chirping and I was poking and I was chirping and you wanted to, you wanted to crush me and you came out with the ice and you, and you said, let's go put on. And Brian McCabe had to come in and you wanted to kill me. And, and then I, and I, and I don't know why I think this is funny, man. I'm like, all right, after we're done, we'll have a shootout contest. I said, <laughs> And anyways, I, 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 after that, I mean, you you had such a good sense of humor. You were like, Ponzi, that was pretty good, man. Like that actually almost made me laugh at the time. So do you remember what that was all about? Like how I got you so fired up there? You know what? I I remember exactly what you remember. I have no idea. Like a lot of the things that happened. What starts a fight? Who knows? But you always remember how it ended. <laughs> but, but it's so awesome because... We were kids too, right? Like we're learning how to control our emotions, and we're, and you know, we're we're all identifying ourselves and trying to be. I don't even know, but I remember that so well. And the reason I remember it is because it was so well said by you. Because yeah, oh great, I want to challenge you at what I do best, and then you're like, oh, that, 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 that. <laughs> oh, that was funny. <laughs> Oh, goodness. You know what? It's an interesting environment, though, right? Like, I mean, at the end of the day, we're kind of, we're all in our own way, a bunch of alpha males in that dressing room, right? So like you said, you're trying to find your own, your own way to exist in that locker room. You're trying to find your own way to feel comfortable and to feel like you have a, a presence and a point, right? And, and it is, it's, 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 and I think that's part of the game, too, that doesn't get talked about to these kids coming up. And, and it is something you can learn, like how to navigate those, that, that scenario. I understand who you are, so you're not trying to figure out once you're in there, right? Because if you feel comfortable in your own skin, like you said, you didn't figure out until you were 25. I don't think I figured it out until I was married with kids, like really. Like it, for me, it, it took that long to understand who Jason is, who I am as a human. And I think if I could take myself now and be a 20-year-old kid and go through the stuff that I was going, my goodness, it'd be much more easy to be a hockey player, you know? So I think that the quicker we can figure that out, the better. Yeah, I, I, it's it's funny. It's life is backwards in a lot of ways. Where when you're young and you're able, um, you know so little. Like that's one thing for me is as I grow, and I'm sure you feel the same way. Pods where, like, the more I learn, the more I realize. And this is a bit of a cliche, but how little I do know. Yeah. I I wish I could have more of a command on my thoughts. You know, when yeah. I, uh, then you know now I I feel so much more confident about how to control my thoughts and I still struggle, but um, yeah, so much I wish I could have applied back then, but back then you're struggling to figure it all out. Now that we know, yeah, 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 well, yeah exactly. it's certainly not too late for, for life. Yeah. And I really no, that's a good point. Well, so let's go back to Spokane. So we're, we're in Spokane. You end up, I mean, you end up getting a, a contract and tell me you never got drafted, right? Because your first year draft year was, I think he, was it in the WHL? Uh, my my draft year would have been my first year would have been when I was uh, in the KIJHL the year before Spokane. Right, and then you went to Spokane. You could have got drafted again. Um, you had two hundred some penalty minutes that year, but it was your first year there. You got you got passed over. So then, what happens to you? And how do you turn? How do you become a pro? Yeah. So then, um, in my overage year, so I had I didn't have a sniff uh, at all for pro until I. Uh, um, uh, after my 19-year-old year pods in Spokane, uh, my roommate, Maxim Betts, our teammate, um, had an agent. Um, and because he was at the house so often, he was a Russian-speaking agent, I just asked if he wouldn't mind representing me. He said, sure. So um, ended up getting me a tryout in Anaheim as a 20-year-old. Uh, 
um, I was hoping to get drafted in, a, in my plus two year, I guess they call it. Nothing happened, but I did get a tryout. Um, went to camp, fought, but it was they weren't offering me a contract. I wasn't ready to be a pro. But that 20-year-old year as an overage in Spokane, I developed a lot with Babcock, that leadership part that we already talked about. Um, and then it was in February sometime where I was kind of thinking about going to UBC and possibly playing for the Thunderbirds, and I wanted to be a wildlife conservation conservation uh, guy. So I just, out of the blue, uh, found out through Tim Speltz, our GM at the time in Spokane, that uh, there was like four teams that were interested in offering me a contract, St. Louis Blues being one of them. And I played in a, we played against the Tacoma Rockets a couple days later. I had a good game, fought a couple times, and the next day I had a contract offer um, and I got a, like I would have signed for no bonus. My bonus was, it was 135,000 US dollars just to sign. I was getting ready to go to college. And so um, I played horribly that night because we had a game in Spokane that night and I was so distracted. <laughs> but it came literally out of the blue uh, two months before our season, regular season ended. So yeah, it was, it was in the nick of time. Awesome. So you got so you got your contract, got a bonus too, which which I mean that's that's pretty healthy. I think that was a third of mine, and I was thirty first overall. So I mean that's pretty cool. Um, and and then so the next year you're you're going to the IHL or AHL, right? Where where'd you land? I see Peoria here. I see Worcester and Providence. Where was the first team you played? Went to Peoria after we lost out in uh, Game Seven against Tri Cities in Round Two. That was a heartbreaker because it was we actually won it, disallowed goal, and then of course. Uh, it was Terry Ryan scored, but um, I went to the IHL um, to Peoria uh, at the end of my year. I can just remember being terrified, to be honest with you, about going. Yeah. Yeah. Like, playoff games there, and then the next year, they moved their minor team to Worcester, Massachusetts. So I went to uh, St. Louis Blues camp, and I played every exhibition game that year, um, and then got sent down. Mike Keenan was the coach. Um, and then that year, I got called up 10 times. Um, I never played uh, – did I play 10 games or eight games that year? I got traded to Boston at the trade deadline. So there was times pause where I'd get called up for a week, not play a game and with the blues, get sent down. And the next day get called up and play a game. It was bizarre. <laughs> but anyway, that's how quickly, you know, my career went from and what I didn't think was going to turn into a career. And the next year I played, I think it was 10 games in the NHL. It's unbelievable. So you're a UBC Thunderbird almost, or thinking about going to school. And, you know, 10 months later, you have a contract and you're playing the NHL. Yeah, unbelievable. It was, it was literally unbelievable. Did it happen so quick that you almost, like, didn't even have giant chance to fathom what the heck was going on? Or, like, how do you remember that time? I, I remember getting a bill from my agent. Like, now I had taxes to pay, and I had to pay him, and I didn't know what to do with my money. And now I had to find a place to live the next year by myself and buy a vehicle. And uh, it was so many different things to process, as you would know, that first-year pro. Uh, all that aside from the fact that you're, like, Am I good enough? Am I strong enough? Am I tough enough to play with these men? Um, I wasn't thinking that I'd play in the NHL that year. But um, uh, it was a lot like when I went to the Western League where I was just, you know what? I was game to do anything I had to do to survive the day and kind of one day at a time and ended up right. playing some games. <clears throat> uh, I want to touch on just like, I mean, your, your role there. I mean, I see 268 PIMs for the, for the Ice Cats in 41 games. You, you, you obviously – had identified at that point or somebody told you that, hey, man, you're here to do this job. Um, and judging by the penalty minutes, you were, you you embraced it. How, just because I know you as you, not necessarily as you, the fighter. Because even when you were the fighter, like you, you I, I didn't, 
I couldn't relate. Right. So like how, how, how is, how was that? Like, what was your preparation like for that? Like you said, now you're having these, these question marks about you even like maybe imposter syndrome, like, am I supposed to be here? Am I good enough? Like, is this, is this where I'm supposed to be? And then you actually got to go out and do that. That sounds like it could be mentally just exhausting. How, how was it? I find myself wanting to say all the right things to you right now. Um, but the truth is um, like, I personally believe anybody that tells you that they weren't scared doing that job is probably not telling the truth. Because uh, I was scared every single day. Um, that wasn't a problem. I didn't view that as a weakness. It was learning how to deal with the fear. Um, yeah. Even try to turn the fear into possibly motivating you to 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 be better. So it, it was. I used to tell myself that I'm the worst thing that what's the worst that's going to happen. I'm not going to die. And that like I know that sounds raw, but that's the truth. Um, and so. Um, when you think like that and you think that, you know, there's a lot of intensity uh, and survival that comes out in you with that kind of uh, job. And when you're not, when you're so unsure of where you're going to fit, you make sure uh, somehow that you're going to be okay by making, you know, an over-preparing, probably overthinking, um, conditioning. I was, you know, that was something that was always taken care of, but it was kind of learn as I went. Um, and I just literally, literally kind of tried to, in some ways survive the day. Like, I'm like, okay, I'm not going to die. And I didn't know at the time, but I probably could have. <laughs> right. Right. It's crazy, but a um, little bit of a barbaric situation, but I embraced the role. I knew for sure that because I was such a good fighter and getting better, that that's why I was there. You know, I still feel like I was a good skater, good, you know, think the game defensively. I was terrible with the puck, but I had other things to support the fact that I was a good fighter. Right. And, and with that being a good fighter, um, and like you said, I mean, I'm not going to die. And like, so you have, you have this, this preparation aspect to that. Did you, did you enjoy that skill? Like, did you enjoy the fight? Like once it was done, was there any pro- part of that where you're like, yeah, man, like you felt good about that? Cause I, sometimes I've asked this question before. Sometimes the, the guys that are doing it just never really did like it. And I find that interesting too, because it's like, that's a whole nother level now, right? Like now you're doing something you don't like in that moment, yet you're continuing to do it because I guess of like, this is where you wanted to be the NHL or you wanted to be a hockey player. This is like your career. I just wonder where you, where you were with that whole aspect. You know what? You're taking me back here a bit once. Cause I can't remember anybody ever asking me that question. I can't remember and you would think that people would ask me that question all the time. Um, and, but the answer to the question is, um, there's two answers to it. I hated the preparation and what went into the mental control going into a fight. Like knowing that I'm going to play against Stu Grimson was terrifying. I hated it. I, I wouldn't sleep. I'd get an upset stomach. I wouldn't be able to keep my food down. Um, but I knew that was part of it. So over time, I learned how to deal with that fear. Um, what I liked about it was I wasn't a, a cowboy fighter where you just grab and go and just take take a punch, give a punch. I was a tactician where very technical. Um, I would l- always let the first punch come, glance, measure my guy up, and I would never throw a punch unless I felt, felt it could land. And I was about t- keeping guys off balance. And, and so I was a thinker. I really enjoyed that part of it because if I did well in a fight, it was probably because I thought the other guy um, – and so in that way, for me, it was more of an art. Right. Uh, 
rather than just being brutally tougher or could endure more pain or punishment. Right. So that part I liked, but I hated, I hated what you had to go through mentally. Ponzi, it was, it was horrible. Yeah. It was horrible. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, knowing like who's coming at you the next day, knowing everything about them. Did you watch tape? Like, was that part of your preparation? Um, very, very rarely, because back then tape wasn't as easy. Like, it's not. It wasn't digital back then. But when it was all about talking to guys, teammates, um, learning from possibly fighting them before, or even losing from them. But um, like when I was in Saint, they would have spreadsheets on every player, and they would give you like, okay, this guy throws right, or this guy throws both hands, quick off the draw. Um, but mostly it was just the mentorship from someone that was there before me. Um, but when I, when I was in the minors, a lot of the times I was the only guy and nobody else really knew. So those were the tough ones where I'm going right. one, like, I have no idea what to expect from this guy. So yeah, right. no, t- no tape. <laughs> just your own personal take. I mean, obviously it's, it's, you know, the enforcer, um, you know, if, if, if you were to play today, you probably wouldn't have a job. Right. Uh, that 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 that's sort of gone by the wayside and fighting has really gone down um do you where do you feel that is do you th- do you, do, you, do you see this being ex- extinct in 10 years do you think there should always be a place for it uh, what what are your thoughts on on that part of hockey i don't feel like um there's room for it the way it used to be um because the game has evolved and the players have evolved um i look to the Detroit Red Wings uh in the early 2000s where um, there's a need for the threat of someone having to answer the bell or be held accountable by players, always. But the Detroit Red Wings barely ever fought, but they had McCarthy and, or McCarty, sorry, and they were team tough. I still feel like there's a place in the game where you have to have that threat. Like for the Winnipeg Jets, we have Dustin Bufflin we have some other guys that are able that almost never do it. But I just feel like if you don't have that accountability on the ice, then, then guys get really, really loose. And it frustrates me because I see it all the time, whether it's a hit from behind a high stick, reckless play, whether it's intentional or not, if guys knew that they were going to have to answer a bell, they wouldn't be finishing half the checks they do. Um, The ones that are questionable are the headshots. If they knew Stu Crimson was going to be either on them or on their best player for the rest of that year and maybe the year after, it just simply changes the way guys play. So does that answer your question? It needs to be there, but it needs to be evolved in there where it just can't be a one-dimensional fighter that's whap, whap, whap. Right. Um, But yeah, I still think it's place. If they keep it in, here's my little prophecy. I think a guy like like a Dustin Bufflin or a Blake Wheeler, if you can be a guy or even like a guy like Tom Wilson, uh, you're getting some feedback there, like Tom Wilson in in Washington, like a guy that can play the game, who's a good player, but can also fight. I think those guys would be worth their weight in gold, right? To to be able to do both ends of that. Cause I I do think it's relevant. I think it's important, but I think, yeah, it can't be, you mentioned Stu Grimson. Like, I don't think those guys are going to be, there's no place for that anymore. You have to be able to do two things or three things or four things. Right. But if that can be one of the things that you can do, I think you're an asset. Yeah, totally. The game is just so fast. We all see it every day. Like you got to be able to keep up with the pace because there's no room, like the fourth line and a lot of teams, now you know like isn't the same as it used to be you know these guys can skate and they can play too so uh you just there's no there's no room for that kind of weakness uh, as far as a one-dimensional player totally um why don't we touch on 
a little bit on well first of all you mentioned Stu Grimms I think that's a good good segue just like tell me he was first that came to your mind was he one of the toughest guys you fought or was like who who are the guys or the one fight or like what's your memory of that where it was like holy smokes like this was this was scary he would be the one that scared me the most uh like I fought all the you know uh, Probert and and Tony Twist and Stu Grimson and Ty Domi and on and on and on Chris Simon but for whatever reason, Stu Grimson, and, and I just had a, a defense mechanism where I grabbed a guy in the arm in such a place where if I was in trouble, the distance between his arm and my hand and my shoulder and my head would give me enough room to get out of, out of a punch strike. And I remember having Stu Grimson grab exactly where I wanted, and I was in trouble, and I, I stretched him out. And so nobody could hit me when I'm like that, and he was hitting me, and I watched the tape after, and his elbow was still bent. <laughs> and so he actually knocked me out on my feet. And I came back and, and it, it scared me because I thought that's my one thing. If I get in trouble, I go there, regroup, and then get back in the fight. And I couldn't even do that with him. And so that's not a good feeling. Right, because so, his arms were so long. Oh, long, like ridiculously long. Yeah, yeah. that's crazy. But I mean, there were, everybody had their own challenges. Tony Twist was an absolute buffalo, like just, you know, yeah. Hugh Grimson does uh, come to mind. <laughs> I love the way you talk about that, though, even the way you, you, I mean, a lot of people wouldn't understand the the technical aspect of that or the strategy involved or like, you know, how much does go into that? You're talking about angles and, and arm length and, you know, you knew where the safe spot was and, you know, to, to do anything at a top level, I mean, you were one of the best in the, in the world of that to be able to do that and get paid for it. And obviously there's a level of mastery that needs to come with that. And I thought that that's interesting the way you described that. I'll give you a little segue. So my very first shift in the NHL, very first shift playing in Florida. It's against the Hartford Whalers, and it's a it's a face off in our own zone. No, it's a it's a face off uh, offside. It's a face off after an offside, and Stu Grimson is the guy I'm lined up against. So I have a picture of that. Yeah, Stu Grimson. Yeah, exactly. And I was like, can you imagine? Like I was like 20 years old, and I'm like, no way. Like I was like, don't go anywhere near him. I didn't want to hit him. Like nothing, right? So that was my first shift. And then I'll tell you another little funny story. Um, did you ever fight um, Jim McKenzie? Yeah, you bet I did. When he was with the Devils. Okay, so yeah, he was with Anaheim at the time, and I was a preseason game with uh, with the Kings trying to make the team. I'd just been traded there the previous year. Andy Murray was a new coach, and and uh, Solani and uh, Korea were both in the lineup for a preseason game. And, and uh, forget who it was, but it doesn't matter. But he took took Solani out kind of from behind a little bit on, you know, preseason. You manage all that looks, right? Behind our net, the guy gets, uh, I think it was even a five-minuter, goes off. Their coach is losing it. I forget who he was at the time. But we're on the power play. Um, we're on the – oh, yeah, we're on the power play because uh, – because they went nuts so after that, right? So it was like there was a two, they, they had two guys in the box. We had one. We're in the power play. Uh, Andy Murray throws me out there, and Jim McKenzie's on the ice, right? But to kill, to kill, <laughs> to kill the penalty, <laughs> which he's never done in, in 10 years of hockey, right? So, so uh, Sean O'Donnell's up lined up against him. Everyone kind of knows what's going on, but Andy Murray tells him to get back to his D man spot and actually points at me to go over to stand beside him. Now, I knew he was tough, but I didn't know much about him because I, unlike you, right, I wasn't preparing to fight the Jim McKenzie's of the world. And uh, right when the puck was dropping, so the puck drops, he slashes my ankle and he goes, here we go, kid. And uh, it was right in front of our bench. So like instantly, like my gloves came off and I grabbed them. And I told my boys this the other day, it was funny. Like, I, I hit him probably as hard as I hit anybody, right? Two times, like two, maybe three shots I got in. 
And then all of a sudden he started throwing a couple of lefts. I had no idea he was left. Right. So I was, I was grabbing his right arm. He, he ate my punches for breakfast. I didn't even bother him. Right. And then all of a sudden, boom, I got two, three, I got a big cut across my cheek. Anyways, I was fine. Like I said, you know what I mean? At the end of the day, I was fine. I got some, some zippers. I couldn't have done a better thing as far as respect for my teammates were concerned. Um, like in the locker room, I was a little mini hero, you know, like this 21 year old goal scorer and like fights Jim McKenzie and, and, you know, and, and stood in there and did what I could do. And anyway, I never ended up making the team. Andy Murray obviously wasn't that impressed, but I, I just remember the boys being real impressed. And for me, it was like, yeah, you know, like I did what I, I needed to do. And it was a memory for me to fight one of the toughest guys in the NHL. So that's my little enforcer story. <laughs> You were a lefty too, weren't you, Ponzi? No, I was a righty. I was a righty. I don't know why. I could throw both. I could throw both. My, this was like a pillow, and obviously my right was a pillow too because it didn't do anything to jam. But. <laughs> Anyways, but I want to talk a little bit about leadership because you, you in my mind, were a great leader because I think people who care about other people make great leaders. I think that's, the, the, that's one of the big ones for me, and I think another one is the fact that you got to be a hard worker. I mean, there's just, there's got to be a sense of professionalism about you to be a good leader. I don't think all the NHL teams have that right now, by the way, which I think is interesting. I think sometimes they stick it on a guy, you know, 20, 21 years old might be the best player on the team, but he has no business being captain um, yet at least, you know, and, and I just want your opinion there on like the teams you were with. I mean, I, I thought you were always a good captain. Was there somebody that you like ended up playing with that you were just like, man, this guy, this guy's got it together. This is what it's all about. This is, this is how you lead. You know what, I, I, I've had so many different versions of captains in, in my years, um, whether it was a captain or, or an assistant captain. <clears throat> I'll tell you this one story first, um, because I had a really good conversation actually with Sidney Crosby, which was a thrill for me last year. And I, and I heard stories about this where um, I asked him about his mentorship when he came in the league. And I know you asked about me, but this lead, will lead up to it. And, and he said, and it's well documented, he sat beside Mark Recchi um, when he came into the league and he trained with him because Mark Recchi was a god in the gym and um, taught him how to take that next level. When I turned pro, Ray Ferraro was a guy I worked out with for eight years and I thought I worked hard pods. Wow, not even close to what I needed to get to and Ray Ferraro kind of showed me. Um, and so then I looked at the Edmonton Oilers and this is not a, a, a hack on the Oilers organization, but I look at Connor McDavid and I ask myself, who did he sit beside? In, in in that room who showed the way you know uh, penguins went on to win three stanley cups um and i believe a lot of that comes from that mentorship and that leadership so like for me i'll talk about paul korea paul wasn't a boisterous captain uh, but he led in his own way he led by being such a detail-oriented guy and he took never left a stone unturned with his craft um and so if you were looking for someone to grab the bull by the horns and say, boys, this is where we're going, he wasn't your guy. But if you could tap into it and understand who he was, it made you better. Um, I looked to a guy like Ray Bork when I played a little bit in Boston. Um, he had a presence. Uh, he, like my first plane trip, we were going to Buffalo, and I got called up for my first time with the Bruins, and he came up and sat beside me. And so right away, you talk about that caring. I just honestly felt like he cared. He asked, he sat with me for about a half an hour and asked me questions about my family and my upbringing and all that stuff. He was messing around with me on the bench in the room um, and then the way he played uh, and the way, when he spoke in the room, which wasn't often, but when he did, it was for a reason. And so he comes to mind as a really well-rounded captain. Right. Uh, uh, 
but yeah, there's been a variation for sure. Right. And I think everyone resonates with somebody different. I don't know if there is a, you know, if there is a right or a wrong, but I, I mean, what you just brought up there, like that's exactly for me, what I think when I remember people is like, like I said, it's the guys that care, right? The guys that, the guys that made you feel included. Cause generally if you got that C on your chest, you mean, you've been around, right? You know what it's about. You're comfortable in your position. And part of that role of being the captain is making sure everyone else feels comfortable. And you and me were both those guys that were not the comfortable guys, right? Like when we were in NHL locker room, it wasn't like we were feeling like we were going to, we knew we were going to be, uh, be there the next day. Right. So, you know, to have somebody to make you feel like you're supposed to be there make you feel like you're belong and part of the group. I just, I can't say enough about those guys and those interactions because that, that has a profound effect, especially on a young guy, you know, to, to feel like, Hey, this is where I'm supposed to be. It really does. I, one other guy, Basil McCrane, a really good story because when I was in St. Louis as a 20-year-old trying to make that club, there was Basil McCrane and Tony Twist that were the enforcers in that team. I played all eight exhibition games that year, and then I actually stayed for the first week of uh, after camp. I am, ended up getting sent down um, before a regular season game was played. But Basil McCrae, who I was trying to take his job, was helping me with everything he could you know, he was an assistant captain that year, but he would help me with flights, where to live, you know, who threw lefts, who threw rights, different positioning on face-offs. Um, he was amazing. And, like, that's a huge form of leadership because, like, he put the team and me in front of himself. Now, he didn't want to lose his job to me, but he was willing to help bring the best out of me. And if that were to happen, it was because it was the right man who won the job. So right. that's a huge sign of leadership, too. That's amazing. And that's a sign of integrity too, right? Like, and I didn't know it at the time, but looking back on it, and again, this is no slight to, to anyone, but I remember being like that young guy in Florida where I thought I was going to have a 10 year career with the Panthers and never get traded and, you know, be a long time NHL. I remember being 20 years old and that when I first got my first games and I mean, now I didn't know the difference at the time. Right. But the Jody Hall and Ray Shepard and like the right wingers on that team were, were not, coming sitting beside me and teaching me how to get the puck off the wall or, or telling me how to prepare or you know what I mean like I, I don't know if, if it just was if it was like longevity that they didn't want me to take their job or if it was just they weren't wired that way but there was no sense of that in that locker room right we're like helping the new guy right at least I didn't feel it and maybe I didn't ask for it either right I'll take ownership on that too because I think when I talk to guys now, it's like, don't be, don't be scared to ask for help. Like ask for somebody, Hey, what do you know that I don't know? Right? Like those are questions that older guys would love to answer. And I wasn't asking those questions, but I also, I didn't have guys coming to me. And then, but I'll fast forward to like my last year and that was in Detroit and man, what a difference, what a difference that was going to training camp in Detroit. Like, and I don't know why that culture was so different. I don't know whether it was Kenny Holland taking care of like, the Kirk Drapers and the, and the Malpies and the, uh, you know, th those types of guys, like those, those role guys weren't scared about losing their job. I think they knew they had a place there. And I think because of that, that whole, that whole environment was very inclusive and a guy like Darren Helm and a guy like, I mean, you can go down and on and on and on. Like these guys were taken care of, right? Like they were showing the way and they were by the guys whose job they were going to take probably, you know? And I think if you, if you don't have that in a team, if you don't have the guys like Basil McRae, you're not going to, you're not going to be as good as you can be. So if your goal is winning, then you need to do that. If your goal is to have a long career and, and, and keep cash and checks, I mean, I think there's a different, there's a different thing there. I think that's where that whole idea of leader comes in, right? Because maybe it's bigger than you sometimes, right? But you know what? I completely agree because like a culture is such a hard thing to build, you know, 
being a part of teams, trying to be a part of that culture, being a coach in minor hockey or the Western Hockey League, trying to help build it. It's really, really a hard thing to assemble or help bring to life. But when you get it, it's, it's, it's not that common in my mind. Yeah. When you're talking about with the Detroit Red Wings, that was uncommon. And, and they had it. And I think a lot of people want it. But when you have it, you should sure feel it, right? And yeah. that's what you said about winning. That's why they won so much. I believe that. Oh, it was amazing. And it was, and like you said, until you feel it, right? Because my own personal experience in the NHL, I just thought it was like, uh, you know, whatever. It's the best league in the world. And this is the way it does. It's like, I felt like it was complete business, like all the time, right? Kind of dog eat dog, each guy for himself. But I was with, I was with Florida. I was with the LA Kings. I was with the Islanders and the Maple Leafs all when they weren't doing well. Right. Like all at points in their franchise history where they were out of the playoffs with it, they were having a tough time. And that I didn't know any different until I went into this championship organization, hadn't missed the playoffs in 15 years and won three cups. And all of a sudden it was like, holy smokes, like this is how it can be. Right. This is this is this is a difference. And obviously everyone wants it, like you said, but it's not easy. It's not easy to create because you have to have. I think it starts at the top. I think it has something to do with the coach. I think it has something to do with your leaders on that team, right? I think it's there, there's a lot of pieces that have to come into place, but once you have it, boy, you got to protect it because uh, it is a special thing. It's funny, quick story for you. So when I was uh, my first year with the Ducks, called up and down quite a bit. <clears throat> and Paul Korea, who later we became very close friends, but called up a few different times, and I don't think we exchanged a word. And this is the captain of the team, and it was starting to piss me off. I'm <laughs> like – what the hell does he know I'm here? And I got over my head a little bit because, first of all, he's a superstar. And I wouldn't mind speaking with him. He's the captain, and I'm uncomfortable. And so I think it was like the second time I got called up. I think I was there for like a month. It was a couple of weeks down the road. I, we were skating around before practice, and I went up to him kind of half pissed, and I slashed him across the shin pads. I'm like, how you doing, Polly? <laughs> and, and it was like he snapped out of his meditation, meditative state. He's like, hey, Swayze, how's it going? Good, how are you? And it taught me something because he was so dialed in and like you mentioned earlier, like different types of leadership. That is a focused man, like every detail. And he was so focused on himself that he wasn't trying to be a bad teammate or a bad captain. He just wasn't aware. But once I did that, it was amazing because it opened up a whole new world for us. We became really good friends later. Just so happens that the Ducks were struggling. And then the next year, Babs comes in as the coach and now we got guys like Rob Niedemeyer and, and J.S. Jaguar and Paul Korea holding meetings. Yeah. It should have never happened before. And we go to game seven of the Stanley Cup final. So yeah. that kind of is, that's kind of a common theme, right? You, you have that. That's awesome. And then you win. I love that story though. Like anyone listening, like, I mean, that relationship was made because you went out of your comfort zone. You slashed the, the, the most important icon in that, <laughs> in that organization and said, Hey man, I'm right here. Let's talk. Right. You know I mean, like sometimes you got to do that good for you. And now you're still friends with them. Right. So, I mean, not everybody would do that though. Right. A lot of guys wouldn't, and maybe you wouldn't have that relationship now. So maybe everybody asks for it in a different way too. I guess I did it with my stick, but right. I suppose that would be the lesson, whether I knew I was doing that or not. Yeah. Ask for yeah, I think that's a big thing. I wish I would have asked more questions because I was like, I was genuinely a curious guy. Like, I love having this conversation. I love hearing your side of it. But for whatever reason, it was just I never found us talking hockey. Like, did you did you find that back in the day? Like, you said you talked with Basil McRae, but like, I never talked to goal scorers about goalies. I never talked about how you prepare before a game. Like, I never. It was always about just keeping it light. And I don't know if it was 
just kind of part of that generation or that era, or, or maybe just the part of the organizations I was with. But what is your experience with that? Did you do you feel the same? Like, are you talking junior or pro? I'm talking pro. I'm talking like best league in the world. Like, I I, I don't remember having those conversations. I wonder if that has to do with with maybe generation, but also role. Where um, just out of desperation with my role, where I was talking, you know, and not very often was I talking too much hockey. I'd ask questions, but it was more the talks I had where, you know, how do I survive this? And so there's maybe that necessity. Um, right. And you had a fraternity with that, with that role too. I think you guys all, there's a bit of a brotherhood there, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Like I would have loved, like we got like Matt, Matt Sundin, you know, like he was 27 year old captain when I was there. I mean, one of the best players in the league, um, you know, playing in the middle of the hockey universe, as some people would put it, like the tons of pressure. And like, he was super nice to me, like off the ice. And he would invite me to go to the bar with him or go for a dinner or whatever. I played on his line a few times, but I never had a hockey conversation with him. Like he never said, Hey man, like whatever. I mean, I'm not sure if he was supposed to or not, but like, I wish I would have asked him more questions or I wish he would have talked to me. I mean, those are the things I'm like, man, like looking back on that, how do you not have a conversation with what, with a guy like that? You know? You know, you're, you're making me think here because there's so much, there's such a um, parallel with parenting and raising kids. And I'm sure you'll agree. I'll be curious. And hockey. And that's what's so good about sports is because it directly teaches our kids so many things. But often I'll ask my kids when they come home and tell me a story about school or this or that happened. And there's a lot of times where I, I, I would ask them like, well, how did you deal with that situation? How did you make that better? Rather than complain about it or, or judge it, did you play a role in shaping the outcome of that so did you make someone's day better and so then i asked myself and so is is anybody out there listening to this as far as ask and that's for sure i believe in that go and ask but maybe even more so a lot of us are in, in roles that maybe we don't even we're aware that we're leaders yeah or we, we could be but we don't take advantage of it so as much as important as to ask Make someone else's day better too. Go out of your out of your way because half of these guys that we all assume think that they know th- that they have that effect on us, half of them probably didn't even know that that would mean that much to us. So right. what a great message it is too, right? Like whether it's to your kids or to the captain of your team, make someone else's day better. Yeah. Right? yeah. No, I agree. And I think all these things like that, the part that made me better with hockey is the stuff that just makes you better in life. Right. Like, I mean, there's, there's so many little, little nuances and skills and, and stuff that, you know, allow you to be, to be good and to be a good human. And I, and I love the fact that my boys are going through this now and I'm able to, to talk to them through the lens of, you know, I wish now I know, or I did know. And, you know, and it, it's uh, to be able to have that experience is and hopefully be able to communicate in a way that they can get it and absorb. But it really is. I mean, that, that passing on of knowledge is so crucial. We talked about that, you know, the culture and the leadership and stuff. I think you know, a guy like Paul Korea, if he didn't have, if he didn't have a Ray Bork in the locker room, then how is he supposed to know what Ray Bork is like? You know, he doesn't even know that that exists, you know? So I think that those guys that came up in that environment, I said in Detroit, like when you have Lidstrom there and you have, you have Shanahan there and Eiserman and these guys that, that, you know, make it a point to make these guys feel included. Like what's Darren Helm doing right now? I guarantee you he's the same way. Right. Because he had the, he had the same influence. So I think, yeah, I think what we know, if we can, if we can have these conversations and like get, get that out there. And if somebody picks up something that's like, Oh man, you know, that, that resonates, that makes sense. Right. Like I can do that. Um, I think we're doing our job because if we keep it, if we keep it to ourselves, we're not really helping anybody. Right. 
Well, you know, it's, and this kind of goes back to our, our conversation when we first started where, you know, giving back is such a huge part of success. And if you ever ask yourself, well, why? Well, first of all, for me, it just feels so good. It fuels your spirit. Um, maybe more than anything else you can do is when you feel like you've affected somebody else and made their day better. But we talked about Mike Babcock, for example. Well, Babs is a wildly successful person. And what's he doing helping me? He's helped me so much. Ray Ferrero was regarded as one of the best broadcasters in the game of hockey. What's, and, and he's going out of his way to help me. Those are successful people. I really do believe, as a matter of fact, I know it. What you, what you give, you get back. It is science. Yeah. Funny I didn't know that, but I believe that now. And right. these guys know that because they are successful and they're helping me succeed. So onward it goes, right? And that's, yeah. that's big part of leadership. No, 100%. I agree. Um, we should wrap up here. I, I know we've been chatting for a while. We could probably chat forever. I mean, I really enjoy our conversation. Boy, there's so much to cover, right? It's crazy. But uh, I do want to talk about what you're doing now. So, I mean, now you're, I mean, after, after, why should we should, we'll touch briefly on how, why your career ended. Like, how, why, what, what, what happened there at the end? Maybe you should tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I forgot to duck. Um, so, I had, career ended with a concussion. Um, I was in a fight in, uh, in LA against the Kings and uh, I made a mistake and I knew it when I did it. Talk about that tactical part of the fighting. So anyway, long story short, uh, I took a punch that I never recovered from. So uh, that was my last game. It was a contract year. Uh, I went home and spent about two years recovering from that. And uh, yeah, I was out of the game. So um, right. my son was born five days after, six days after that happened. Um, so whose punch was it? Uh, Brad Norton from the LA Brad Norton. Way tougher guys than that. No offense, Brad. He's a good guy, but uh, just made a mistake. So. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, the head injuries are a big part of the game, and even like even understanding them now. And at at, at the time, it it wasn't that well understood when you were leaving. But obviously, yours was yours, yours was big enough that you couldn't even come back and really play. I guess. Eh? I, I'll actually I remember the day that I I decided is because uh, it was a contract year. The next summer, I had a one way contract offer for two years from the Calgary Flames more money than I've ever made. And uh, I tried to do a squat with just the bar on my shoulders just to warm up. I had a gym in my garage, still do it. Uh, almost fell over at a Disney's from just doing 10 with the bar. And I'm like, how am I gonna take a punch in two months? There's no way. So walked in and wiped the tears away and called my agent and said, I'm done, can't take it. So that was it. That's but a tough decision to make, eh? Well, yeah, I mean, it was scary. It's actually scary to think about how far I was willing to push it. Um, right. Thankfully, I didn't make a silly decision there. But, yeah, that right. led to other great things in life, too. So, um, yeah, good for you. Yeah, I remember, like, I never had a concussion that I know of, um, like, for my first whatever. Till I was 29, I was in Germany, of all places. at practice. It was a two-on-one, and I went for uh, a cross, a cross two-on-one drill regroup. Um, and my edge came out, and so I fell in front of the guy crossing with me. He tried to jump over me, knee me in the head, and I was out on the ice. I guess like a minute, like had the convulsion, like uh, concussion, had to spend the night in hospital and uh, took me about two months to recover from that. Um, and it was an awful, like trying to come back because it was still misunderstood at the time. And there's a lot of pressure from my coach, even like really challenging my integrity and my character that I was like, almost like choosing to be out, you know, like it was, it was not an easy thing to deal with, but I ended up coming back um, and played thought I was okay and then took a hit like a tiny little hit like I saw I saw a guy coming I was along the wall 
um, you know, brace myself. And anyways, like could barely get to the bench. I got another concussion. It was like, you know, three months after the first one. And, and again, like I, I did recover from that, but it was, I don't know. It just changed my perspective really. I mean, it was, it was, you know, I was in, I was in Germany. I wasn't the NHL. There wasn't as much on the line, but I was just like, you know what? Like, I don't know if this is worth it anymore. Like I, I want to be able to speak to my kids and stuff. So that was definitely a part of my decision um, getting out of the game as well. And uh, it's, it's so sad what's happened with a lot of these guys, you know, like the post-concussion syndrome and never really fully recovering, but um, that's something to be said with the fighting, I guess, too. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't. I didn't know that about you that you had a concussion. But uh, yeah, that's yeah, two at the end. It's great. I think we've all had them now. We probably look back and be like, oh yeah. And I guess I mean all the things that they're doing now to protect the players. I think that's great, and we got to do it because uh, we, we, back in the day when you put us in charge of whether we were coming coming back or not, and that's what it was, right? And you're the only one who knows your symptoms, and you're the only, and you're supposed to be this warrior gladiator, like you know, now it's not in your choice. And that's the best thing they ever did because as soon as you take it out of the player's hands, that's the way it should be because we're all going to be in there. It's just the way we're wired, right? I really agree. They've, they've come so far as far as creating baselines and testing. And yeah, it's it's a tough one though, right? Like, I mean, as you would now know, when you have a brain injury, I mean, there's no scientific way to heal a concussion and, and there's things you can do, but I mean, nobody really knows unless, unless they, I'm not aware of it, but I mean, how do you heal a concussion? Right. I know. Exactly. I'm going to finish up just with you being able to watch the Jets every day. I think that's cool. See, I mean, one, you do an awesome job. So easy. Like I, I don't get a chance to watch much TV, but I did uh, in the research that I listened to you. You actually have the, uh, have the opportunity to be with Dennis Bayak. So funny story with Dennis Bayak. He comes out every year and does Kenny Holland's golf tournament up here at Predator Ridge. So there's a bunch of hockey guys that come out, not all hockey guys, but guys Kenny's known forever. And Dennis is a guy that Kenny knows from way back and he introduces the tournament. Like he, he's the MC at the beginning and, my God, does he have us all in stitches like every year. He's, he's a funny, funny guy. And I, I don't think that gets to come out enough on TV personally from what I've heard of Dennis. So I don't know, maybe you can comment on that. Uh, I don't think the fans really understand how funny Dennis is, but you must have a blast working with him. Well, first of all, Dennis told me a couple stories before I get onto that about you and your golfing. Like he told me that you were a scratch golfer because you had to fill in for somebody one time or something. And he said, I think it shot 72. So I heard the game's pretty good, buddy. <laughs> it, it was okay. I, you know what? Everyone's going to be laughing who knows me now. I'm nowhere near scratch now. I can really even keep it in, in the fairway. But, uh, but yeah, I did have a couple of good outings there at Kenny's tournament. Took home the hardware once, uh, I believe. But yeah, Dennis is a Dennis is a riot man. He's he, he's he's got me laughing all the time. And yeah, so you guys like you guys are on the road. What's that like? Is he like your he's like your line mate? I guess right. You guys are hanging out together lots. Totally like great chemistry. What a mentor. I'm actually embarrassed that I haven't brought him up when we were talking about leaders because this is a guy that I told him last year or two years ago when I tried out for this position. I just said, I'm going to be asking you a lot of questions and I'm not stopping until you tell me to. And he goes, you just keep asking. And he's answered every single one. Great guy. Cares a ton about people around him. Hilarious. Brilliant. Witty. Funny. I love hanging out with this dude. So quick story. We were just doing our uh, our last exhibition game in, in Minnesota a couple nights ago. And and Dennis talks about the power plays. There was a lot of them in the game. He says, three power plays for the Jets, three power plays for the Wild. So if you're doing your math, three and three, that makes six. Like, just joke quick. And so I'm in front of him. I'm like, he goes, keep your shoes on. And just real quick, eh? I'm, I'm on my cough button laughing so hard. And he's like, the look he gives me, like, 
he goes out of his way to try to make me laugh and it is so much fun and i've heard about these mcs that he does i've never seen one by myself but everybody tells me the same thing brilliant yeah yeah he's a right he's quick he doesn't miss a beat he's a he's a blast but but in saying that, so you get to watch these guys, best players in the world. You get to you get to color commentate. You get to bring your, you know, your experience, your angle to it. Um, I'm a big believer in practice uh, and getting better in practice. And and I, you get to watch these guys and how they play. And, and I and I know firsthand that a lot of guys they don't all practice the same. A lot of guys aren't still trying to get better at that level. That everyone handles it differently. Like. Who in your mind, like, approaches practice like a pro? How you would have maybe handled it, you know, in your day? Like, every day is an opportunity kind of scenario. And, and who would you be like, hey, little little Mr. Sawyer, I want you to follow this guy's example. Like, who, who would that be there for Winnipeg? Yeah, there are three guys that come to mind, and it's an easy answer where – well, maybe four. But Adam Lowry is a third-line center for this hockey club. His dad played the National Hockey League. This guy is a thinker. Like, he's so intelligent – um, he understands everybody's position on the ice, regardless of their winger, centers, D-men. Um, he, he could be a coach now, I do believe that. Um, and you can tell that he's practicing what's been applied. Like, he really pays attention to his craft. Um, after practice, the courage to work on not what you're good at, but his weaknesses. And I love when I see that from someone. Like, like that'd be like Patrick Lonnie working on his one-timer after practice every day. Well, I'm not so sure that he needs to do that. And he still does, but he works on other things. Blake Wheeler is the captain of the team for a lot of different reasons. But Fonzie, like, I've, I've said this on the air. I think he practices too hard, <laughs> if that's even possible. Right. I'm that he hasn't gotten hurt because um, he drives to the net so hard. He sh- like, it is such an unbelievable example. Like, this is, like, nobody – has an excuse not to go hard because he does. It's crazy. Like he's blowing snow on goalies because he's stopping at the net so hard. Um, Josh Morrissey is another guy who was a, a puck guy and a, an offensive D-man and led all D-men as an 18-year-old with PAs, scored 28 goals. And he came into the NHL as a, defend, a defensive defenseman, a shutdown guy. And now he's starting to add the layers of offense. But for him to pay that kind of detail to getting better at what wasn't his strength kind of turned his weakness into a strength. So watching him at practice, just the way he lays his stick and angle that he approaches the puck at and how he can neutralize someone's speed on and on. Those guys come to mind when I watch them practice. I'm like, yes, they are trying to get better right now. Right. It's, it's so fun to watch, man. I think that's amazing. I mean, that's a, that's a testament. That's anyone can do that. Like, that's why I like talking about that stuff, right? It's not, that's not an innate gift. You know, that's not, I mean, that is a choice, right? How you're going to go out there, what you're going to do at practice, what you're going to try and get better at, whether you're going to be courageous enough to work on those things that maybe, you know, you need work at, but it's tough, right? I, I get the ego side of it. You're in the NHL. You're one of the best players in the world at what you do. And there's people watching, right? There's people watching, you're watching, right? Guys are watching, coaches are watching. And people can look at that as being like, I'm exposing myself. Right. And I don't want to look uncomfortable. I don't want to, you know, fail or I can actually try and get better. So I'm going to be here longer, add more to the team, make myself have greater longevity, whatever the thing may be. Right. There's two, there's two ways to look at that. And I just want the young kids to know that, right. Like now is like, if you can start building that muscle right now, that I, I call that the, the mental courage muscle, like to be able to look bad in order to be good. 
Like that's one of the things I say all the time, be able to look bad so you can be good. Like you got to be able to do that. Cause if you don't have that, you, you're probably not going to be around that long. I mean, you have to have that mentality to get better, to get better, to get better. And uh, it's awesome. You're saying Blake Wheeler's like that. I mean, that goes back to the culture thing. I think it seems like Winnipeg does have a pretty good culture there. And if you have, if you have a guy like Blake Wheeler wearing the C who's absolutely dominating practice and approaching the game like that, like you said, how do those young guys not come out and play hard? How do young guys not try and get better under that, under that leadership example? Oh, right. The word that you use is the word courage. The courage to be able to, to look at your weakness right in the eye and, and do something about it. That's what I talk to my kids about all the time. And to me, it's the trait that every single highly successful person that I've ever really met, they have that, or at least it, it appears that they have that. And, yeah. um, it's not an easy thing to do though. <laughs> no, no, hundred percent. No, it's not, not at that level either. Um, and I find too, you talked about Patrick Line. I think, and I mean, I don't know him at all. Zero. Right. Uh, I can relate a little bit. You mentioned that. I mean, I'm not to pretend that I have a shot like line or anything else like that, but I mean, that aspect of the game came easy to me, right? Like uh, I, I didn't, I didn't have to work on my breakaways or I didn't have to work. Yeah, I mean, I did cause I liked it, but it wasn't like, okay, I got to get better at this, get better at this, get better at this. And I think a guy like that, when you be, when you become so naturally good at something, which is scoring goals for him, um, it probably really pisses him off that he has to even work at it. You know I mean, I, I think like that's sort of the thing. And I think somebody like Patrick, I don't know how hard he works. Or he does. Is he a hard worker in practice or what, what is he like? I've watched him learn how to and uh, when, when I describe Patrick Line, hard work isn't the first thing that comes out, but he is a hard worker. But if you asked me that two years ago, I'd be like, uh, he's in process. He's in process of learning how to work hard. Um, but it's amazing how he's grown because he's starting to figure that out. But I, bet you, I bet you Blake has a lot to do with that too. Well, you almost have to. Like it's like right. he creates a wave behind him and you almost have to like you can't get out of, out of the way of a wave. It's going to take you. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that. So, um, and that's, I'm not, I'm not taking a shot at Patrick Liney. I'm just saying like a lot of young players, like Jack Roslevic, for example, you know, is a guy that, that Paul Maurice even says that he plays with Brian Little sometimes because he wants him to be beside someone that works harder than him consistently. Yeah. Because that's just what happens with the young guys. So, yeah. yeah. No, because those guys that come up that young, those are generally the guys that have like all the tools, right? That they, like they're immensely gifted and you also have to work hard. And there's other attributes that have to come with that. You can't just get there on skill alone, but generally they are like the, you know, the, the most skilled guys are the 19 year olds, the 20 year olds. Right. So now they're in a league with men. Everyone's really good there, right? Everyone is really good there. And now you have to figure out what you haven't had to figure out before in junior and what you haven't had to figure out for in minor hockey. Right. So that's one of the things just for the young kids listening is like, no matter how good you think you are right now, there's somebody better for sure. And you need to get better. And if you're not thinking about getting better right now, you're doing yourself a disservice. So, uh, and, and those lessons are learned. Like maybe you watch the Sydney Crosby, you watch the Blake Wheelers, like they're, they're the best of the best because they continue on to be the best and they continue to know they have to grow to be the best. Do you agree with that? Uh, absolutely. We walked into Pittsburgh last year and the first number that I saw it was 87 it was great and he was working in a small area a small space drill that I think he started himself and then he just had a few teammates that came and joined him and this guy's this is before pregame skate he's working on something I'm just like uh that is like if he's doing that who's not right <laughs> what an example that's that's leadership I'm, you know in my mind he's the best player on the planet 
you know, and that's no disrespect to Connor McDavid, but when I watch his habits and in, in practices and games, he's won Stanley Cups and gold medals and on and on. Ah, man, talk about the full package. Yeah, no, that's awesome. That's a great way to end. I think, Soizy, you've been a gracious host. You've been you've been awesome. Uh, actually, I guess I'm hosting you. You've been you've been an awesome you've been an awesome guest. Um, love reconnecting. Super great. And uh, I know we're going to keep in t- contact again. I hope I hope the kids and the and the coaches and the parents out there learned a lot because your story is awesome. Like I just love that. I love everything about it. That you know the 110 games. The irony is too, like which I love, and it's a slam on me. But you scored more goals than me at the end of the day, buddy. I got one, right? You got three in the show, and you got three times the games, right? So, like, but that, <laughs> there's a truth to that, though, right? It is like, I mean, there's a way to go about things. You never know when you're going to get your opportunity. You got to be ready for it. Um, and you can create opportunities, too, right, by how you perform in front of people, the connections you make and the, and the, uh, and the relationships you build. So, Man, you beat me in the NHL goals department. I got to give you a high five for that. Um, we probably wouldn't have guessed that back in Spokane. So, so good on you, buddy. And uh, I'm glad you're doing so well in what you're doing now. It's, uh, it's awesome to see you uh, being at the top level again in, in your craft. So good for you. Thanks for that, buddy. Honestly, I can't believe that. I think we just talked for two hours and went by like that. I know. That we connect because we both live in the same neck of the woods. And then honestly, Pods, I, I see your posts and have been for the last year or so. And uh, there's been times where I've pulled my kids in to, to watch them because I, I really love what you're doing. And the messages that you, that you send sometimes teach me something that I didn't already know or it kind of echoes what, what I'm trying to relate to my kids. And it's so nice to have someone else reiterate really, really good messages. So keep doing what you're doing, man. It's awesome. Awesome. I appreciate that, buddy. And uh, have fun this year chasing that team around. They're going to do some good things, I think. And uh, if, tomorrow morning, baby. There, we go. there you go. There you go. And if anybody needs me, tell them and give them my number. <laughs> All right, man. Thanks again. We'll chat later. Thank you for tuning in today and listening to my conversation with Kevin Sawyer. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Uh, if you want to follow Kevin on social media, he says he's not uh, super social media savvy, but he is on Twitter at Kevin Sawyer one if you want to follow him there, or you can obviously listen to him on Jets broadcasts on TSN. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe, review, and share. I, As you know, this podcast is just getting started, so the best way to support it is to subscribe, review, and and share. I uh, can't say uh, how much that means to the podcast to get it in front of other people and let other people know you like what you're hearing. Uh, I have a great lineup of guests coming up. Uh, new episodes drop every Sunday, so make sure that you're uh, watching for those. And wherever you are out there, make it a great day. I'm Jason Padolan. Thanks for listening.